Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 171, Game On, recorded November 30th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me just barely are your two stalwart co-hosts, Chris, the Command Line Godfather, and Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning and evening and afternoon to everyone who's listening to EDL. And I'm just grateful to be here. Howdy, everybody. <laughs> so we record this show 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Sunday evening, and uh, roughly 7.20 p.m. Eastern Time, Sunday evening. Both of my co-hosts had massive hard drive uh, hardware failures, uh, So, but we're all good geeks here. They had the tools. They had the talent. They overcome, and here they are. That's right. Woo, woo. It's amazing what just a little know-how and a whole lot of... Desperation? Please, please, oh God, <laughs> let this machine reboot. <laughs> um, We totally went, went managed to completely not mention the fact that last week was Thanksgiving week when we did the show. So the show came out on Thursday. The following day was, was uh, excuse me, the show came out on Wednesday. The following day was Thursday, Thanksgiving in the U.S. So we gave thanks in the form of gluttony. Um, that is That's the American. Right. And, and in fact, for that reason, Thanksgiving is my favorite American holiday because it's not um, it's not a memorial. It's not a birthday for anybody. It's not even a recognition of a, a, a great historical figure. It is a pure feast. Many cultures throughout history have enjoyed feasts, but in America, well, the fact is in America, we feast three times a day every day, but we have, we have forgotten the tradition of the feast. And I love the fact that in, in, uh, November every year, we bring it back for one day and it's all about the food. Yes, it's family and it's football and it's gathering, but it's all about the food. And I love that as a foodie and a fat guy. <laughs> It's kind of nice to be able to just let it all hang out once in a while. And, you know, I love to cook, and my wife loves to cook, and we, we love to entertain. Unfortunately, the home we're renting right now is too small for entertaining, so our parties consist of our immediate family plus, you know, a couple of uh, in-laws or whatever. Um, but we uh, um, love the cooking part of it, and so, you know, Thanksgiving is on Thursday. We typically start cooking the Sunday preceding, uh, yep. making preparations, and because it's just such a – Thanksgiving Day is all about the sides. Yes, there's the turkey and in some places ham, but it's all about the sides. And and you know, regional or or family, whatever it is, we all have different things. But it's it's usually starchy and sweet and yummy, <laughs> and all of the above as well. So, did you guys do anything? We just had uh, people come to actually. My mom uh, came to our house, and that was it. Um, and uh, we I avoid Black Friday like the plague. That it is. Uh, we'll talk a little more about Black Friday, I'm sure. <laughs> what did you guys do on on Thanksgiving Day? Uh, I'll take ahead, the first Chris. line because uh, the very first thing we did is we, of course, do the same thing. Mark, we start prepping probably all oh, a week to two weeks ahead of time with you know the house smells of cookies and pies and <laughs> all everything that's all yummy and sweet. And then uh, this year we had our normal Thanksgiving with my my side of the family, my mom's and we have everybody in the whole family comes in, shows up at one location and it's kind of a potluck dinner type thing where 
there's turkey, ham, and pretty much anything else you could possibly think of. Um, we've been known to have shrimp dinners and, or shrimp scampi type dinners and, and all sorts of weird, not traditional Thanksgiving dinners or parts to the dinner, but, uh, first Thanksgiving is always that fun. And then we always end up with a second Thanksgiving the next day with my dad and his, and his side of the family where, um, since my parents have been split for many years. Um, so we get to have Thanksgiving twice. It's great. So is one more traditional than the other? No, 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 no. It, the, the second one is a little bit more traditional as in the simple fact that it's usually just a turkey and stuffing and pies and, and salads and stuff like that. But, uh, it's still been known we've had lasagna for Thanksgiving a couple of times. So it, it all depends on who's cooking. What about you, Seth? How did you give thanks? Well, this year was a little different. Um, we've had it at my brother's house the last few years and, um, his wife had to work on Thanksgiving. So we had it Friday, which was first time I've ever had Thanksgiving on not a Thursday. Um, but so we, we, we picked out and one of my cousin, our cousin, cause I, if he's my brother, it's his cousin yes. too. <laughs> they live in the suburbs in Dallas. So they drive out and, you know, they brought some guns and my brother has land and we were shooting them off. And so, cause you're you know, a target, redneck and that's what you do. Uh, well, we were shooting at targets. We weren't just randomly firing them up in the air, but, uh, so that, that was fun. Uh, you know, and some of, some of, uh, his youngest daughter's pretty young and a friend of hers came. And so I kind of showed them how to shoot. Uh, you know, this is how you aim. This is how you don't hit other people. And, uh, so <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun. That, that part was pretty fun. Sounds like it. That's what we do for Christmas. We, we go out to my stepdad's place and we fire guns until we run out of ammo. Yeah. So we, we have the wilderness, uh, wildernesses rec- uh, represented here. We have Montana and we have Texas, both places where you go out and you drink heavily and fire things. Um, that's right. Know, fire weapons. And, uh, and nobody sees a problem with that. Well, we don't drink heavily. So we no. just fire weapons. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's still, it's the every, every near tragic or tragic incident around the holidays involving rednecks begins with, Hey, y'all, watch this. Um, hold my beer. <laughs> you forgot the best part of that phrase. Yeah, hold my hey, beer. watch this. Hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, as, as other countries are finding out, I, I saw a, a post from a friend of mine who was, um, out of the country for Thanksgiving Day, and I forget which country he was in, uh, they were having a huge Black Friday sale. So, which is interesting because it's not a thing for them, right? So, in the U.S., um, most people take the Friday after Thanksgiving off. It's not an official holiday, but if you're taking off on a Thursday, most people take Friday off too. So, what are you going to do on the Friday uh, before, you know, at the end of December in the Christmas season, you're going to go shopping. It's a natural thing that's happened. Well, yep. uh, you know, decades past, uh, merchants got into that and, and started running their special doorbuster deals, right? You'd, you get there early at, uh, at six o'clock in the morning and then that rolled back to five o'clock in the morning. Then that rolled back to three o'clock and now it's seven, six p.m. on Thursday night. Yeah, Black Friday begins. And the, the, you have some pretty amazing deals, right? You can get things 40, 50% off. Uh, this seemed to be the year of the big screen TV. Uh, you could get like a 50 or 60 inch big screen TV for 50% off, which just goes to show how much, ama- how much the markup is that they can still make money when they knock 50% yeah, off. Yeah. But the idea is once you're there, you'll buy other stuff. 
Well, but, um, but you got to remember that the everyday price is like 30% off. Right. So it's really not as big of a deal as 50% off sounds because yeah. nobody, even retail stores don't charge retail anymore. I was in a jewelry store once. I may have told this on the air before, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, it was one of those mall jewelry stores and the guy, right. I was looking something for my wife to, for Christmas and he said, Hey, this ring's 50% off. And, uh, I looked around and I noticed a lot of 50% off signs. So I took a gamble. I said, you find me one thing in the store that is not 50% off, I will buy it right now. And yeah. this is this is a commission dude, right? He took that right. seriously. He started scouring the cases, looking at the show. He went to the back room, and he came back and said, you got me, man. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We've got this one $50,000 yeah. thing. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you could have been hurt bad. Yeah, I could have, right? Well, of course, I didn't, you know, I, I could have just ran away. Um, but uh, I, I, every time you go to a jewelry store, everything's 50% off, which means right. nothing. You know, 50% of a number we made up. Um, but anyway. Either that or they're going out of business, one of the two. Yeah. Right. So I've I have a lot of those lately. I avoid too. Black Friday because it can get violent. People get nuts about, oh, yeah. you know, this thing that's cheap. And, and my wife used to like to go, um, she's sort of gotten over it now, but I always tell her, you know, the 30% you save, you make up for in lost sanity. I I will pay you a hundred bucks not to go. I will, I will write you a check right now for a hundred dollars not to go anywhere today. Uh, she's finally started to see my, my, um, my way of thinking, Uh, but Monday, after Thanksgiving, after Black Friday, is known as Cyber Monday because you've been off work for a couple of days. You show up at the office. You're not quite ready to go back to work, so it's time to do some Christmas shopping online. So tomorrow morning will be Cyber Monday. Uh, and, of course, every all the online re- retailers are starting to spread that out now. So Amazon.com, elementopen.com slash Amazon, is having their Cyber Monday deals starting on Thursday. Which doesn't yep. really make a whole lot of sense, but I'm gonna go with it. Yeah, might as well. I did. Might new well. I did buy one thing. theirs yesterday. Yeah, I bought one thing for my wife. It was like four dollars off. Um, but they they got me. <laughs> I bought something online marked as a Black Friday deal because it was four dollars off. So capitalism wins in the end. So speaking of capitalism, I had a uh, a tinfoil hat listener um, uh, who I'm pretty sure didn't give me his real name in the email because when I replied to the email, it bounced back saying this is not a valid address. Uh, Sent me an email saying, I want to uh, contribute to the show, uh, but I only transact in Bitcoin. Do you accept Bitcoin? Well, if the dude wants to give me money, I'm going to find a way to let him do that. So Element OP Productions now accepts Bitcoins. If you go to the tip jar on elementopi.com, you have now the option to uh, make a one-time donation with PayPal, a recurring donation with PayPal, or a single one-time donation with Bitcoin. So who uh, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to please. If you want to give me money, I will make a way for you to give me money. <laughs> Very cool. I can't believe how much a Bitcoin is still going for, though. It just blows my mind. And what it's what is it now? I don't even know. Uh a Bitcoin is currently three hundred and seventy seven dollars. Wow. Which is down quite considerably from the beginning of the year where it was up around a thousand dollars. When I first heard so, about Bitcoin four years ago, it was roughly one to one. 
and that was pretty late because uh i mean early on it was thousands of bitcoins to a dollar um but when i when they first started to get traction i first heard of them it was like 90 cents to a bitcoin or 90 bit uh one bitcoin to 90 cents, somewhere around there it fluctuated um and then it took off went way up and it's gone way down uh but i think bitcoin's here to stay for a while anyway and Until if not bitcoin found. some other one heir yeah. apparent to it yeah I think what's interesting though is I, you know, I was going to buy a hundred bitcoins when they were, you know, pennies and I didn't. I'm like, oh, nah, I'll have more common sense than that. I won't buy into this. This is going to be just garbage. Hindsight's 2020, man. Hindsight's 2020. Yeah, I was I was talking with Sean, the co-host of Tightwad Tech at the time, uh, when he and I were talking about it, and I said the moral of what we're hearing here is buy a thousand bitcoins right now. And hang on to them, and just yep. write it out. And I didn't take my own advice, because um, for that thousand dollar investment, I could have it could have been you know three hundred thousand dollars now. Yeah, or or a million dollars. Yeah, <laughs> you could have been a millionaire, Mark. Jeez, what were you thinking? Uh, but like any market like that, if you try to unload millions of dollars worth of bitcoins immediately, they start to go down in value. That's yeah, that's you the crash way you the go. market. <clears throat> yep but yeah it'd be cool i i that's awesome i uh i thought about you know maybe firing up a miner just to have it running um but i don't know i i I would have a hard time turning off my seti yeah well so the the mathematics of bitcoin are that there is a fixed number of them i forget what they are and the closer you get to that fixed number the harder they are to generate so at this point your regular i7 processor it has almost Garbage. zero chance of, yeah. of hitting a number. I was, right. um, you know, our company has a colo in a massive, in a data center. And I was walking by and this one, this one person, they had left their monitor running and I was just, it was just watching this thing go. I was like, I wonder what that is. So like I saw the, the file structure and the name of the program that was running. So I went, uh, and I Googled it when I left and, and they had a Bitcoin miner. Running at a data center. At the colo? <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't in our rack. So it was just, I could just see through the screen looking at it. I was like, really a Bitcoin miner? You're going to, you're going to buy, you're going to rent space in a facility like this to do a Bitcoin miner. Yeah. Why not? Well, they're, Why not? you know, they make chips now, systems on a chips that do nothing but spit out hashes. Uh, right, thousands yep. of times faster than a risk chip. Uh, well, actually a CISC chip, wouldn't it be? Uh, trying to do, uh, uh, multiple things plus that. So, um, the, the, it has scaled so much now that I, I was reading something a while back that, uh, mining, uh, consortiums are reaching the point where their electronic electricity consumption is actually more than the value of the bitcoins they're mining. Yeah. It's becoming a losing battle, even for these people who have huge, uh, resources to throw at it. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, which you know, until some new technology comes out, we may we may not hit that limit of bitcoins with our current technology. We may just may not be able to do it as the numbers, the math gets harder. Right, right. You know, so and with uh, as quantum computing gets better and more refined, maybe that will, uh, you know, bring a uh, bring a resurgence to the Bitcoin mining. Yeah, I, I, it might, or or one of the other cryptocurrencies will take over because they're. They're the up and comers that don't have all of their bits right. mined out yet. But the the beauty of of Bitcoin is it can't 
uh, it can't inflate significantly yep. in that. I, I forget the number. I'm going to make it up. But let's say it's a trillion. Once you hit a trillion bitcoins, the system eats itself. There's just you can't generate any more. It's over. Um, yeah. Which is it's a neat is, idea. It is a very neat idea, and I like the fact that they actually have it broken down so you can transaction in a thousandth of a bitcoin. Right. And and if it inflates to the point where it's you know ten million bitcoins to a dollar, it's easy to just add zeros. You know, just add decimal places, and you could yep. you could be transacting in nanobits. You know. It's cool. I, I really wish I would have. Maybe I'll start a Bitcoin wallet up just to have one, just in case. Uh, okay. Um, and Seth, <laughs> speaking of the 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 bad movie forum, uh, you saw one of Val Kilmer's early bad movies. Man, top secret. It was on the other day, and uh, I watched it, and I think I enjoyed it more now than i did because you know that came out like in the mid 80s i think it was 84 just after real uh, genius i think maybe before something yeah yeah well this is one of the abram zuckers uh ones and i think this is the best one they ever did there's so much subtlety and little things happen in the background that you don't notice and it's just so funny and it's not it's just pure awesomeness top secret Man, it's it's the greatest movie ever, I think. The great one of the greatest comedies of all time. If you're into that sort of thing, which I am, yeah, you know, it's, because I like it. It's the slapstick slapstick naked gun kind of uh, absurd yeah. humor, which never really appealed to me that much. Uh and in fact, when I when I went to a friend of mine, uh a mutual friend of Seth's, uh talked me into going to see Naked Gun 33 and a third, um and this will this will tell you how long ago it was. We paid six bucks to go to one of the nice theaters to see it. Wow! Um, and I'm sitting there in this movie, and probably eight or nine times throughout the movie, when a particularly bad gag would happen, I would turn to him and say, six bucks, Co. Six bucks." <laughs> <laughs> well, come on, six bucks isn't that much. It was then. back then. I mean, I was making like three dollars an hour. It was two hours of my my work. For that All terrible right. movie, um, <laughs> I don't know. I just to just me, remember it could have been worse. This was the best one they ever did. I think it it hit the high. It was their high point. And so, <laughs> if you were going to luck, if you're going to try any of those movies, I would say Top Gun. Yeah, because you know, you at, by the time secret. you got yeah Top Secret, by the time you got like into the Naked Gun ones. It was like you knew what was coming, and right. so they tried to get dumber and dumber. This one was right. original and funny. I, I thought. I think. I think the best of breed is Airplane, um, which is saying in the same vein. Right. Yeah. Yes. Airplane is very, very good as well. Um, but like I say, Top Secret's a little more subtle. Yeah. So, because <laughs> they were known for their subtlety in the eighties. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. And you know Subtle, another like one I mentioned prior to that, face. real genius, very different kind of comedy, but still had that eighty slapstick style to it. I like that one a whole lot more. Yeah, yeah. they're all good. Period. Yeah. It, it just they're all good movies. Um and uh, okay, moving right along. Uh, <laughs> um, I looked it up and I've already forgotten how to say it. Uh, a Swedish fellow. I'm going to try to say your name right, Henrik. Um. 
comments Sounds uh, close. on our discussion about paying by the bit. Now, this is something we talked about in episode uh, 169 when, Chris, you weren't here, but we've also talked about it many times in the past. Should we be, we be paying by the pipe or paying by the bit? And Henrik has a, uh, a very long email. I have excerpted it here, and it's still very long. Um, he is very thorough in his thoughts, but... I mean, I just kept the good parts, and it's still super long. There were lots of good parts in here. So I'm just going to read with it, and uh, here we go. He says, hey, guys. First, I'm Swedish, and I still really enjoyed the discussion about net neutrality neutrality in episode 169. Uh, The reason I enjoyed it is because the consequences of an FCC decision uh, will affect me as well sooner or later. Uh, You brought up some really good points in your discussions, and I pretty much agree with all of them. One thing I'd like to comment on is how to pay for for the bits delivered. You mentioned that you currently pay for gas, water, and electricity by the amount you consume, and it would be beneficial, not the exact words used, to pay for bits the same way. I get that you see it with, this way with that background. For me, though, it's the other way around, except for except with electricity. On the street where I live, at the outskirts of our town, about 12,000 residents in total, uh, we have a common well and a pump which supplies our homes with water. This is paid for with a fixed rate every year based on the number of households and estimated maintenance fees. I currently pay for um, bits by the amount I get squeezed through the phone line, ADSL, per second, which is around a 10 megabits. Again, predictable bill at the end of the month. My phone is the exception, but I rarely go above the 3 gigabit allowance, gigabyte allowance, which comes with my monthly cost, thanks to Wi-Fi, so I can live with that. Now to why I believe this is the right way to pay for bits. It's not just because of what my background is. Say my ISP decides to upgrade me to a 100 megabit fiber connection, which both uh, with both my brothers living within three kilometers of me have and pay less than I do for 10 megabits. Not envious at all. There's a condition, though. I now need to pay per gigabit I use. Would I take it? Heck no! As you said, the supply of bits is infinite, and that is a fundamental difference compared to the other resources we use daily. There are a few more fundamental differences, though. If I end up having to pay by the amount of water I use daily, and it starts to get expensive, I can easily cut down on that by not requesting more water than I really need. Surfing around the web, watching videos, listening to podcasts, and so on is a lot less predictable than that. I cannot always be sure how many bits I get when I request an item X from my ISP. By calculating the average size of EDL episodes I download a month, I could make a guesstimate how many bits that would cost me. I'd be able to enjoy your show seconds after it was released because I can now get it super fast and I'd only have to pay if I want an episode. Sounds great, right? I don't really care if an ISP decides to put a local caching server in my town, but how do I know they do it right? If ISPs can compress bits, they can also inflate them. The problem gets even larger if my ISP decides to give me an even faster connection. Since I'm not paying for speed anyway, they just want to give uh, want me to request more bits. They benefit from giving them to me faster so that I can use wires to give other people more bits when I finally decide to pull the plug. I'd actually have to physically disconnect the transceiver device in my home to completely cut off the possibility of a supply of bits when I want to be sure I get no more bits. Simply turning off my computer and switching my phone to the cellular network, um, the endpoints uh, for requested bits won't be enough if the transceiver device is still connected. The transceiver device itself will still receive any and all bits sent by, by my ASP, even if I didn't request them, unlike the water supply. Nobody could just push more water or gas or electricity into their end to make me use more than I want if I simply stop letting things out the other end. With bits, a modem or router still has to process every single packet, if only to reject it. And ended, and I end up using the line. If the modem speaks good TCP. It should even acknowledge that it got those bits. 
and even using more of my allowance when I'm not looking. Anyway, that's my two bits. Uh, thanks for this discussion. So, Mike, we had a discussion uh, on 170 uh, about that, where somebody else had brought up the fact that you don't control the bits that you made. So we modified our comments. Go back and listen to that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Bits, uh, paying by the bit is flawed in that you can't not get bits. Right, or you have to go to extreme measures to not get bits, and also it's uh, you know th- the endpoints can very much control how big your your how many bits there are, even for the same content. I would say there are other places now where that is being done, where where things are being forced on you that you don't want. But uh, it is an interesting point that makes paying by the bit. I'm not going to say in- untenable, but unlikely. Um, and it also explains why the ISPs want it so much. Right. Yeah, he makes a good point. Um, you can't, you know, paying by the bit would only be fair if you trust your ISP to not screw you. And we all know from experience that your ISPs and data providers, they have people whose only job it is, is to think up new ways and creative ways to screw you that have never been done before. So it, it is one of those things, you know, if everybody would just do the right thing, we wouldn't need all the regulation. And we've talked about that before. So, you know, he had, he makes some very good points about that. Chris, you have any comment? Um, I, other than, you know, that's one of the biggest problems of paying by the bit, the, the exact reason that he's putting down there. Um, the other problem I, I would have to say though is you'd have to also, if you're going to pay by the bit, you would have to find a way to regulate which bits are up and down. Right. You know, are you going to pay on only download bits or are you going to pay on only upload bits? Um, so yeah, paying by the bits can be a tough one. I think if there's a way, I like the idea of Mark where, where you say where we pay for the pipe that leads to your house, not the stuff that flows through it. Yeah. And that model has been in most countries, right? He said ADSL modem, uh, asynchronous digital subscriber yep. line. Asynchronous means he can download faster than he can upload. That's pretty much standard everywhere in the world because they don't want you plugging in a server and hosting, you know, uh, Reddit on your consumer line. So that, that pipe is regulation in a, in a different way, but they, you know, the, the way I look at it uh, is in the case of, of many things, if the people selling you the thing want it, it's a bad idea. Right. Um, the same thing when I, you know, when I go to a car salesman and he's pushing the, you know, the clear coat on me. If he wants me to buy it, I probably don't want to get it. Uh, and so I look at that, the, you know, and the communications industry desperately wants to charge by the bit. That alone is enough for me to say I don't want it. Right. I can honestly say we're all in about the agreement with that one. But I also think that's how it's going to be. As much as I don't want it, I think it's going to get there eventually, and there's there's going to be little we can do about it. Yeah. I'm kind of scared to find out what it actually ends up, when it actually, you know, happens. What's going what, what's gonna to happen to, like, our show? Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of scared about it, to tell you the honest truth. We'll see. Um, the... Comcasts of the world, not it's not so much Comcast, but their uh, their um, NBC, their current parent company. I'm pretty sure NBC owns Comcast. They want to con- be the only ones making stuff. 
Yeah. Um, and so they're naturally predisposed to shutting down people who make stuff. Now, admittedly, Everyday Linux is not taking one bit of traffic away from Scandal or something that's on NBC. I don't know what. Um, but they still see it as we're their competition and that we're creating stuff and they want to own creation. Right. Which is stupid. You know, let the little guys play. Yeah, well. <laughs> you wouldn't. Yeah, there's, there's the Screen Actors of... Guild. We need like the Podcast Doers Guild yes. or something like that. So the Lollipop uh... Guild. There you go. <laughs> All right, and uh, finally, Mark, not me, uh, says hello and asks a question. And he says, "Hello, I wanted to note you have succeeded in the goal of making this an entertaining show. Keep up the soapbox rants and bad movies, but please." Don't rename the show. More on that in a minute. The show is a good way to start a Monday. So when it's released on YouTube, I use a tool called YouTube DL to pull down the show before it's shown in the RSS feed for my podcatcher. On the subject of net neutrality, it seems that a tiered model would work for consumers if AT&T and other providers besides Comcast get on board with fair pricing and for the speed offered. It's not right that certain providers offer 6 megabits down with not much less money than other providers offer 50 megs down. There's one thing that's been bothering me on the show. It's the use of the term neckbeard. What does it mean to you in the EDL cast? Am I one of those because I like command line tools versus a GUI? Thanks for listening, Mark. Uh, So in order of your (laughs) comments, um, you said you you, uh, renaming the show. So last week... Seth and I had a discussion about the possibility of rebranding the show, but it wasn't on the show. It was in the YouTube feed, which is how Mark knows about it because he gets it off of YouTube. By the way, the I don't have a problem with you doing that. The only negative is that I can't count that download. Yep. And that's that's well, we, a problem. Not a huge can't problem. We count it at, can't we count it as a, a an active um, – doesn't it show up as a watched video then? I don't know if it does or not. Well, yeah, you, you can go to YouTube and see how many times your video has been watched. Right, but I'm not sure that watching it and downloading it is the same thing because uh, what most of those things do is just grab the link and download it in the back oh. end, and I'm not sure okay. it counts. Now, I'm not in a position for that to really matter all that much, but if I were you know, relying on numbers – circumventing like that would work against me mark i don't care go do it i just wanted you to know that there in the future there may be some negative aspect to you doing that and we'll probably let everybody know if that ever comes up um and so the next thing um the tiered model uh fair yeah you yeah, you said that. Fine. Uh, oh, but the re- renaming the show, I, I forgot to, about that. We, my thinking is that we need to stop pretending to be a Linux show. We're not. We're an open source show. We're a technology show. We're a lot of things, but it's really more open source than Linux. We talk about lots of stuff, but not Linux. Now, I know you guys, our listeners, will follow us no matter what we name the show. We could name it Bob Stinky Pants Show, and you'd be you'd, <laughs> you'd stick with us. Um but I'm afraid that new listeners browsing the catalog through iTunes or or Stitcher or whatever else um, might look at that and go, Ugh, I don't, I don't even know what Linux is. I'm not going to listen to that. And yes, we do have the tagline, the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of, of Linux. But do you really even know what that means? If you listen to the show, you know what it means. But if you're just browsing yeah. the headlines uh, and looking at it, you're not going to know what that means. So I think we're missing a potential audience base 
by having the show named Everyday Linux. So I'm thinking about that. Audience, what do you think? I posted on Google+. Plus. Uh, I only got a couple of responses. Both of them were don't, name the, don't rename the show. Uh, but there wasn't really a good reason for it. Just, you know, we're geeks and we fear change. Um, I understand that. I'm, I'm right there with you. Nobody likes to change. I'm not talking about changing the show, just for the record. Not changing anything we do, just the name of it. I'm not going to say, oh, now we're the, you know, the, the Ford podcast, and we're only going to talk about Fords made between 1937 and 1948. No, it's still going to be the same show, just a, a name that more effectively reflects what the show is. And Everyday Linux doesn't reflect the content of the show. And so what do you think? All right, so there's that. Now, moving on to a neckbeard. Uh, neckbeard is, a, I don't know who coined the term, where it came from. Uh, I heard it somewhere else. I didn't originate it. But, you know, Linux geeks, geeks in general, right? But the open source, the sort of quintessential Linux geek, R Richard Stallman, grows a beard by not shaving, right? So there's a difference between having a beard and just not shaving, right? And so I, I, I have a beard. But I shave my neck, and I shave the little line there on my cheekbone so it's nice and straight, and I trim it all up. But the neck beard just stops shaving, and the hair grows straight out of the back of his neck or the front of his neck, right? And it's really long, and it's getting down into his collar, and he's probably wearing a fanny pack and uh, carrying a laptop with uh, an iHeart Linux bumper sticker on it. That's a neck beard. The not not disparaging these guys they're just they're more into the tech than they are in anything else they don't care about uh fitting in they don't care about personal hygiene <laughs> they just care about linux so that's a neckbeard when i call somebody a neckbeard i'm talking about the hardcore geek the banana guy or bandana, bandana guys guy. used to use yeah. so mark w w would that put me in the, the, the neck neckbeard category here no, no. See, you've you've not yet. You have shaved. There's a there's a line of demarcation there, where the hair okay. has been cut. Um, <laughs> okay. A true neck beard. His chest hair and his beard just grow into one another. They just unite. Interesting. Um, All right. I'll I'll definitely make sure that part <laughs> never happens. <laughs> I used to work with a guy. You know, I, some of those guys are just super hairy, right? They can grow a beard between breakfast and lunch. And he was one of those guys. And he used to shave the top part of his chest so he could wear an open collared shirt. Um, so you know, when he wasn't wearing it buttoned up with a tie, with a tie, there would be this tuft of hair there if he didn't shave it. So he'd shave his his neck. He, he had a beard. He'd shave his neck and his his the underside of his chin and then the top of his chest because he was just that hairy. Jeez. I know guys like that, yeah. and yeah, I'm not quite that bad, but there, there, there's been days that I know that I have to be careful about how far down yeah. I go. And bandana guy, just to tell the story, I know we're we're reeling off course here, but that's fine. I'm gonna go with it. Um, it works. Sean and I were at a, a tech conference. Um, Sean Keibel of the Taiwan Tech, um, several years ago, and there was this dude who walked in, full on neck beard, fanny pack, um, a broke looking like he cobbled it together out of spare parts laptop with the with the top like rubber banded onto the thing and a a freaking six inch um rubber like cell phone antenna sticking out of the wi-fi socket like he had built his own wi-fi adapter um and he could probably pick up wi-fi in japan 
Um, and, and he, he was wearing sweatpants and a button down t-shirt, uh, a button down pullover shirt, button down shirt. Why do I keep adding to it? Um, like a polo, not a polo style, like a button down. Stop, Mark. Just say button down. Uh, <laughs> um, what kind and, of shirt was it, Mark? It was a button down. Uh, okay. <laughs> we were looking at him and we were like, that's the guy. That is the quintessential Linux geek. That's that's him, bandana guy. Mm. And so bandana guy became sort of our term for neckbeard. And on this show, we use the term neckbeard a little more. But it's it's the quintessential guy that you think of when you think of of guy living in his basement, his mother's basement, tinkering on on something. And and he's freaking awesome. And he could you know he could lead hacksaw you to death. Uh, but he's not sure how to make direct eye contact. Uh, so that's bandana guy. The guys from Scorpion, for those that have watched that show, those would be bandana guys. Even though they don't fit the the quote neck yeah. beard, yeah, the the Scorpion guys would definitely fit. Because well, everybody too. on television is pretty. Even the quote unquote ugly people just have like a pimple and wear glasses. Um, you know, everybody on television is pretty. So even yeah. the bandana guys there have to look nice. <laughs> Unless you're the villain. The villain's the only ugly person in any TV or movie. Pretty because much right. In our Western society, um, beauty is good and ugliness is bad. Therefore, I'm an unattractive person. I must be evil. But yep. that's, that, <laughs> is, that is a trope that has developed since the visual medium of movies. Um, it hasn't always been the case, but it's certainly it, ingrained, yeah. in our, ingrained in our culture. Wow. Went way off the, the reservation there. Uh, but that's okay because we have another really long email from our friend Nige, who comments from time to time. Um, he says, I really enjoyed your discussion about the future and relevance of desktop Linux. This was 165 maybe a while back. Uh, though I'm not sure I share the same conclusions. Linux as a mainstream alternative to Windows or even OS X10 as a de- desktop OS clearly isn't going to happen. But that's not to say it will go away. It's only on the desktop where Linux might be described as having failed. On every other device, Linux-based operating systems are huge and a growing success. We said that in the show. Every device needs an operating system, and unless they start to inexplicably regress, those RSs or OSs are always going to have the capability to run local functionality in addition to just a browser, networking, audio, video. Uh, On that basis, there will surely always be an additional application for people to install on their devices over and above what comes as the standard. The question is, which operating system will they be using? If we're going to just use a browser as our interface to everything, then it could well be irrelevant what the OS uh, is that we use. In fact, even if we continue to run local applications rather than rely on totally on the cloud, the browser could still be the only interface. Platform independence was the vision behind Java, and something similar is promised for HTML5. The real debate is whether a situation where any OS will run any application is the same thing as there being a need for only one OS. If the OS of choice uh, becomes irrelevant on a functional basis, then the question is uh, the question of why use Linux could easily be why not use Linux? If cost and functionality are out of the frame as far as differential is concerned, then the question of open versus proprietary assumes greater prominence. As the concept of Windows equals computer recedes and the profile of Linux as the dominant server OS rises, the logic of choosing Linux to run on your personal devices could well gain traction. 
Personally, I'm not disappointed that Pure Linux Desktop has never grown beyond a niche. It's probably the single biggest reason why it tends to be far less subject to malware infection. I don't see it growing much beyond where it is now, but as a uh, primary device OS with a desktop capabilities as a bonus, in the long term, I see Linux growing considerably in the consumer market. While I'm saying my piece, I think it's well beyond time to dispel the myth that the future is the cloud. Android and iOS devices are supported by huge app stores, which are growing all the time. You don't need app stores with the cloud, just a list of URLs. As far as mobile devices are concerned, the future is client-slash-server, at least until super-fast mobile internet is the worldwide norm. Cheers, Nigel. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of that. Yeah, and just, Nigel, a little counterpoint to your last thing there. Most apps are nothing but a stripped-down web page anyway. They just... They bundle it in an app and sell it in an app store and bundle some extra add-ins with it. But that's pretty much all apps are. And when you're talking client-server, I, I think the term the cloud also means client-server. I mean, when the bulk of the processing and the bulk of the data exists other than on your local device, that's the cloud. Whether it's a server or a distributed network, it's still the cloud. So I think maybe it's just a difference in terms there. You you say that that um, the future isn't the cloud, and then you say it's going to be client server. I, I would say that's that is the cloud. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think he needs to redefine his cloud versus client server thought there. And and if you don't just, know, if you're listening to the show and you don't know why we call it the cloud. Um, if you're ever drawing a network diagram, and this is still true, but it certainly was true in the early days of the internet, you would draw uh, hard lines for copper uh, between your uh, or fiber between your buildings. You would draw dot- dotted lines for wireless between your buildings, and then you would draw just like a big puffy cloud for the internet. So if I'm connecting from building A to building B via a, a piece of copper, it would be a straight line. If I'm connecting from building B to building C via wireless, it would be a dotted line. If I'm connecting from building C to building E over the internet, that would be a cloud, meaning you don't really know what route it goes there and you don't control it once it gets there. Even a VPN is still considered the cloud. So the idea of something you don't control became the cloud. So cloud infrastructure means stuff that somebody else controls. Well, and you even have public clouds versus private clouds right. now as well. That's so. true. Yeah, and so the term yeah. the cloud has sort of been co-opted to mean anything that ain't here. <laughs> if it ain't here, right. it's the cloud. Yeah, it's it's kind of taken a morphed role, really. So it, it's interesting how that term has taken root. So Nige is, is sticking with the more traditional, the cloud being the internet itself. So if there's a server on the other end that I own, that's not the cloud. But in modern usage... That is the cloud. The cloud means anything that's not here, anything that's not local. Right. Yeah. All right. And if it was, if it was that simple, we'd all. Yeah. It's never that simple, though. That was a long intro segment, but I think there was some good stuff there. Um, so I think I'm going to jump straight over the tech news, and we'll come back to that later, uh, and go on to our discussion points about gaming. In Linux, so we're, we've we've talked about gaming on Linux before. Uh, Seth came up with some some links a while back that were just sort of naturally fit together to talk about the current state of Linux gaming. So that's where we're gonna where we're gonna go, but not before I tell you about our friends over at the LinuxAcademy.com. 
uh, so that if you want to learn how to make games in Linux, they're actually not going to help you at all. But they can certainly teach you how to run the Linux box that the games go on. LinuxAcademy.com, you know the story by now. Uh, it's, a, it's a step-by-step video course um, system. So the, it all began with these videos. First do this, and I will show you doing this. Now do this, and I will show you how to do that. But it's grown so much beyond that now. So it, it's almost not true anymore that they're step-by-step video courses. They're an integrated learning environment. They're an, they're an online university, really. Uh, let's not say university. They're an online learning center because uh, university has a specific meaning. Um, so you go there, you go to linuxacademy.com, you sign up for one of their uh, services, and you say, I, I'm, I see this module here. This module is introductory to Linux. I'm a super beginner. I don't know anything about anything. I'm going to take this introductory uh, to Linux thing. You're going to learn about the history of Linux through video courses, right? There's going to be slideshows. Uh, you're going to learn um, how to do the basic things, how to navigate around. Um, very command line heavy. They they understand that server administrators need to understand the command line. So most of their stuff is command line first and GUI second. Um, and I think we're okay with that. Um, but along with the videos, there's going to be these PDF study guides that you can read right along with it. You can download them. You can print them if you're a paper person, if you're just super excited about that. You can write on them, whatever. They're time-coded with the videos so that you know at this point in time, this is what we're talking about. And then with that um, is there are quizzes and there are practice exams and all that sort of stuff. So for the introductory to Linux, of course, there's no uh, licensing exam or anything like that. But say you're taking the LPIC Level 1 module where you're learning to be a Linux certified professional. At the end of that, there's a practice exam that, that mimics the, the LPIC Level 1 exam that you will go when you go to the testing center and get that certification. So it walks you through all this in this entirely integrated system, not just the videos, not just the the uh, the PDFs, but it's hands-on learning because they give you this lab system of virtual machines that run in, in the cloud on Amazon system. They're lightning fast. They're uber reliable. You can have up to eight servers total, but up to four of them running at once and all interacting with each other in a private network so you can have one be a server, one be a client, one be uh, you know, a, a router in between. You can configure all these things, and it's a safe environment. If you blow something up, you just reboot it and start over again. So they're showing you what to do. They're, giving, they're telling you what to do, and they're giving you the opportunity to do it, and then they're testing you to make sure you know how to do it. This is so much more than just video courses now. It's, it's grown way beyond that. Uh, and they have a relatively new feature, learning plans, where you say, I'm going to take this course, but I've only got X hours a day, X days a week. And they'll break it down for you and say, uh, at the end of, at the beginning of every day, they'll send you an email. Today, you need to watch these three videos and take this test to stay on track. And it's not on track with some arbitrary thing. It's on track with what you told them. I want to take this course, and this is how much time I have to do it. It's totally personalized learning. And you don't get that. At, at DeVry or at, you know, at these other, any places like that. It's, it's, it's amazing that they have taken the ethos of Linux, of open source, of doing it your way and built it into their learning system so that you tell them when you're available and what you want to do and they figure out how to do it. All at Linux, uh, LinuxAcademy.com. And when you go there, you're going to find that not only is it amazing, it's affordable. Their basic standard rate is 25 bucks a month. $25 gets you in the door. Cost of a pizza. Get, well, maybe pizza and a soda. 
uh, get well, you in the door. Or a couple of slices of pizza, depending on where you live. Depending on where you are, yeah. <laughs> no um, kidding. Took my family to California Pizza Kitchen. Story right in the middle of an ad. Bad, bad form. Uh, never been to one of those before. But for six of us, my wife, myself, my mother, my three kids, we spent $90 on pizza. Oh, um, it was good pizza, but holy crap. You know what $90 could have bought me? It could have bought me six months, more than that, of LinuxAcademy.com. Because if you buy in bulk, you save money. $25 will get you a month. Uh, $60 will get you three months, buy you a quarter. If you want to go annually and, and just jump in for a full year, $199, which breaks down to less than $17 a month. So go there, try the $25 first. If you don't like it, you know you haven't lost much in fact if you i said it before i'll say it again if you don't like it and and you're being earnest about it let me know i will send you 25 bucks i believe in them that much so uh when you go use the code everyday linux and let them know that you heard about us here heard about it here yeah uh don't have a lot to say it's just like don't be afraid of it guys you know how to watch a youtube video um I think you do because you can listen to this podcast. You like, I don't know how to command line. I don't know how to remote into another server via command line. Well, you watch like one of the very first lessons. They, they tell you to go download putty and then show you on putty how to connect to the server. So it's that simple. You just, you do what they do and you learn while you're doing. It's amazing stuff. Well worth your time. You don't have to be an expert already. You know, um, it's great for the beginner. It'll take you from the beginner to a pro. Um, and like That's I said, their job. I just hear this going to take a montage. Um, if you're a <laughs> South Park guy, you know that song. And I just, I keep wanting to sing it every time you do the ad, but it's awesome. And it's well worth your money. If you want to get into IT and you don't have, you don't have the time or the resources to go to a college or one of those, um, you know, and then there's there's the the university type colleges, and then there's the paid um, private uh, learning places. You don't have the time to commit to that full time. You can do the Linux Academy. You know, a couple hours a week, and you know, six months or so, you'll be ready, and you'll have the familiarity with Linux to be able to interview and get a job in the IT field. All right, so let's jump on to the topic of the week: gaming and Linux. Now, I'm not a gamer. Um, I play very simple, casual games. Hill Climb Racer is one that I'm playing right now on my phone, where you just have a car and you go up hills with it, and you have to tilt it left and right. That's the that's the kind of gaming I do. Um, Seth is not a gamer either, so Chris is going to have to hold down the fort and represent the gamers this week. But we have a couple of articles about um, you know where where the state of Linux is in terms of Linux devices and, and Linux gaming. And uh, one of them is the Ouya. If you remember that, we were talking about that. That came out uh, May 2013. Well, this article, it's a bit dated. May 2014 talked about the, the Ouya um, a year later. And um, you guys have read the article. Any comments on that? Of course, I know you didn't read the article, Chris. You don't do anything, uh, actually, but that's okay. I did. <laughs> I did read the article. So, ha, ha, ha. No, uh, the Ouya. I haven't played with one yet. Um, I have yet to see one in the wild at any gro- at any of the big box stores that I go to. Um, but I've been kind of watching it to see if it actually manifests into something worth my time to actually, you know, maybe look at buying or whatever. Um, it seems to be 
from what I've seen from the different articles, um, it's about a hundred dollars to buy it. It's uh, an Android-based system, so you get your your you know Angry Birds type gaming on. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting system. Um, I'm like I said, I have yet to see one, so I could actually put my hands on it. Um, when I can, I'll probably try it. Um, I don't know if I would drop a hundred dollars on it just for the fact to say I have one. Um, but I mean, some of the games that they have, they're a little bit, actually, they're a little bit more impressive than what I was actually giving them credit for. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So the, the, so, Ouya is essentially a phone. It's roughly the same kind yep. of hardware that would be in a phone. So there can be some pretty neat phone stuff, but it's hooked up to your big TV using a nice controller. Um, yep. and this article is over at Androids in Hell, and he talks about the fact that he's had it for a year. It started a rocky. It, it wasn't great. Uh, but one of the things that the, the art, uh, the author here talks about is the, the discover marketplace of games where there's like wrestling games, uh, uh, where you, you know, have a flaming cage match with tables and, and you have a, a bar yeah. ball. You can do that. Uh, uh, amazing frog, uh, which is, you know, uh, sandbox gaming where you you build your own stuff that's very popular these days uh so they're they're casual type games but those can be very immersive as well um and so it's it's really like having an old uh nintendo 64 it's probably yep. uh, the graphics and the and the gameplay is going to be similar to that and you know the people listening to this audience probably grew up on that yeah i'm actually looking through some of the uh development places and some of them are actual you know Big box AAA developing studios, you know, like Fox Digital or Sony, um, or not Sony, Sega. The Sega development team, they're doing one. Uh, some of the Final Fantasy stuff is over here. So you, you get your Final Fantasy 3 from, from Square Enix. So, um, and it's not just you know, gaming. There's a YouTube app. Uh, there's a VLC player. So it, it's making a play for that media market as well, much like the, the PS4 and the Xbox. Uh, right. So that or it's trying to it's trying to kick my Roku out from right. what I'm reading. Um it looks like it's a good chance to uh maybe for my kids possibly. So I'm not sure this is the first but it was one of the first Linux based um desk uh living room set top boxes. Um and while it's not growing like gangbusters in the market the product seems very solid from the reviews. Yeah, and they're actually they're actually getting ready to come out with a next generation one that's going to like uh do a little bit better job of Wi-Fi because there's been some issues with like the Bluetooth and the Wi-Fi using the same antenna. So it looks, you know, it's not like oh this is all they're ever going to be. They're coming out with a with a second version. So, you know, this isn't going to compete graphically with like the PS4 or the Xbox, whatever they're calling it now, Xbox Omega squared on steroids. Um, but you know, it's a way to get a media center. You know, it's running Android. So, it, you know, if you have a tablet, if you have a, if you have a non Apple tablet, then you probably have an Android tablet and, uh, you'll be <laughs> familiar with the device. Um, you know, you'll already kind of know your way around the system because it's Android. And, uh, I don't remember, I don't, I don't have one, but they were talking about you could play like just regular Android games on it as well. So, you know, like you sign in with your Google Play account and you'll have access to those games as well. Um, and again, 
I don't have one because I, I had an Xbox 360. I didn't play it in like a year and a half and I thought I should sell this. So, you know, I play, uh, I play solitaire and free cell and spider on my tablet and that's about it. <laughs> of course, we can't talk about Linux gaming without talking about Steam and specifically yep. Valve. So they, you know, they, um, have excelled at doing Windows style games on a Linux client. Right. And, and, you know, they announced, uh, in mid 2014, I think it was the Steam OS. And not only that, but their own device, right? A full on high powered, uh, uh, PS4 style device or a series of them, actually, uh, that would be available starting, uh, in like October, already I think available. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Starting they, in October 2014. Uh, they became available and, uh, um, so not too long ago, but these, there's these, that, that they're the, the name right now in portable gaming and they're making Linux first class citizens, uh, in a way that a lot of other people don't. Yeah. It's, it's actually a very impressive thing. Um, I was going through the list of games that are now considered Steam OS, um, ready. Um, there's actually a spot in the store to actually just say, I only want to see Linux games and a lot of them are still, there's still quite a few of them that are the um, Windows ports, so you're not getting native software code yet, but they're porting it. Uh, and they and work. Lo- That's the important thing. Yeah. yeah. They're, so far, from the ones I've actually demoed or played with uh, that are considered ports, there's only been a handful of them that were uh, really horrible ported. and But the majority of them, they played just like their Windows, count- their Windows counterpoint. And, you know, like, this was what blew me away. I wasn't expecting this, but uh, the people who put out Borderlands 2, which is a really huge first-person shooter, um, they just released their new ver- their new game and retrofit all of their older, their Borderlands 2 franchise, all the Linux as well. So you can get your hands on some pretty top-notch stuff that you can play now. Um, and I think, uh, in the store, if you just sort by Steam OS and Linux, there's 61 titles that are considered class A, you know, class A games that work without any tinkering. Um, so yeah, the, the, there, it's coming, it's slow, but it's gonna, I have a feeling eventually it's gonna take over. When I was reading, um, the Valve blog about the different Linux things, or the way that um, when they were testing Valve, or when Valve was testing the gaming engines to run on Linux, they were using uh, Left 4 Dead 2, and once they changed over from DirectX rendering to OpenGL rendering, uh, they saw an immediate improvement of almost, I think it was like 170% in frame rate for the exact same hardware. So... um I have a feeling it's going to become a big player, especially if you go out to Google right now and search for the Steam box. Um, there's, what, I don't remember how many results, but there, there's all the big players that are yeah, there. Yeah, but a couple I mean, of those are for washing machines, and oddly one yeah. is for a goth set of women's heels. Um, I, I thought that was funny. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how that one came in there. But what I was looking at, I'm looking for the big names, you know, like right. Dell and um, Azus. Alien or the Alienware brand is on them. There's also some of the CyberPower t- PC games or Cyber CyberPower PC uh, store. They have a Steam box, so they're coming down the pipe 
with better and better um, hardware. And I have a feeling that this market is just going to explode. Um, I don't know when would be the perfect time to buy in, um, but I know it's getting close. And the other thing I noticed when I was looking through, like at CyberPowers, their um, Steam box is actually user upgradable. So if you buy one from them now and you need to upgrade the video card, they'll give you a list of which ones are fully supported and then you can just drop in a new card and you have an upgraded machine. So you don't have to buy the whole rig again, which is what Nintendo and Xbox and PlayStation all do. So kind of an interesting concept. We'll see if it actually yeah. catches on. Uh, they do, they have been, imp- or set, they've been sending out updates to the Steam client for new features that they're putting in for these, the, the actual Steam box. So like, Last night I tested just to see if it worked or how well it worked. Um, on my Windows gaming rig is where I have all my Windows only games. And I loaded up my Linux laptop and did what's called in-house streaming. And I was able to play a, you know, it was, it was, uh, let me look at my library. I don't remember what the name of it was off the top of my head. Um, Brutal Legend is the name of the game. Um, they uh, it just streamed right over my Wi-Fi, perfectly, from my Windows box to my Linux machine. So now that they have things like that set up, there's also um, in-house sharing where you can say these three people are in my house, let them see my games and use my games, so they can actually with under their credentials install the game and play it with your with your key. So it's kind of a neat concept. I'm I'm curious to see how much farther they go along. And the interface that they use now for what's called their uh, big screen mode is what they want you to use for when you go to you know, a controller or if you're putting it on your big TV is just just as easy to navigate as like the PlayStation 4 or the Xbox One. So uh, they're definitely improving faster than I've seen the other devices, you know, improving. Uh, It's interesting to see. I can't wait to see what happens in the next six months to a year. But it's not all rainbows and roses, uh, as illustrated by uh, developer Puppy Games, who took to Twitter in September to complain about the fact that they make four games, and of those four games, all times, uh, their, their sales for Linux have totaled twelve thousand dollars most of that being as part of humble bundles uh so maybe their games just aren't any good i don't i don't know but the fact is at least this one uh, game company is starving to death trying to sell games to linux people well the that particular game or that 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 uh gaming developer um and i'm not gonna i don't want to slap him around a little bit but he does tower defense games and they're not they're 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 difficult tower defense um real time strategy type games and those aren't ever in my opinion mind you i don't think they're ever going to take main stage they're casual games they're going to be the ones that you play while you're waiting for the dentist um i don't think they'll ever they're not steam quality games in my personal opinion they're they're casuals uh, and I, 
don't get me wrong, I have two of their games and I play them all the time. And if I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have found them on a humble bundle, I wouldn't have bought the second game. So yeah, they may not be getting, you know, dollars for dollars what they're expecting, but they're also a very niche game. So, you know, take that, take that with a, you know, grain of salt because I don't think that they're ever going to get billions of dollars for an RTS. Yeah, I I enjoy those kind of games, but not enough to pay for them. You know? Right, they're they're the dollar, two dollar, five dollar, you know, game. Five dollars would be pushing it in my, but in that genre of game. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't see them as a, you know, yeah, they're a, a minor player complaining about not being a triple A game. Kind of food for thought. Well, I just you know. I kind of think that Linux, they kind of missed the boat when Windows 8 came out. You know, Windows 8 was not well received. Microsoft has done a lot of things and made it a lot better and people have just gotten used to it. So the chance for Linux to make huge gaming inroads, I think is passed. And now it'll just kind of be a war of attrition, slowly picking up a little bit here and there. Um, but yeah. you know, at best market share Linux is you know, pure Linux is 2% maybe. And and let's say the numbers are way underrepresented and let's say 5%, you know, you're only going to get it. That means 5%, you're probably going to have 5% across a lot of different spectrums. 5% of the hardcore gamers isn't going to be enough, I think, to get tons of killer revenue. So unfortunately, unless you are delivering top flight, awesome kicking games, um, I don't think you can survive as a gaming company doing Linux only. You know, it's, you're going to, it's just like, yeah. you know, most app developers, they have their Apple apps and their Android apps or the same app in both, both platforms because, you know, you can't just do Apple because their market share is right. so small. You, you know, granted they still have a large market, but if you want the big money you've got, and you can't do just Android because Apple people have more money. So you, you want a piece of that market. Um, so it's the same thing in, like I say, unless, unless you got some banging games there, you're not going to make a lot of money off of Linux, but I, hopefully it's getting to the point. It's too much to ignore, but it's not enough to make that your sole focus. Yeah, at least well, in the short term, I, and it may never be more than short term. The play, the way to make money is what Steam is doing, and that is to make Windows games work on Linux. And, you know, Wine does that. Play on Linux, which is Wine packaged, does that. And that that's the, the idea is to make a game for, you know, the 80% out there and make that work on the 5%. Right. I think what's going to end up happening and it, it, until this until what I'm going to say happens, I don't think Linux is ever going to actually make a major inroad on. Um, con- well, they may make it on, uh, it, it on console gaming, but PC gaming, they're never going to take over until there is one of the big games, you know. And I know Dota 2 is one that could possibly do it, but they 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 need to have one of the big game companies and some big name in bigger names in the gaming industry so like you're you're and i don't know the guys off the top of my head the the gamers that play dota 2 but those are all still windows games you know they're they're not playing them on 
a Linux machine yet. Until that changeover happens, where the 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 players are actually saying, "I get better performance on Linux, so I'm going to move over to Linux," we're it's never going to make inroads. But once it does, I think that's where we're going to see the changeover, where you know the main you know you're getting an extra fifty frames per second or more on a Linux box, so because I get that competitive edge, I'm going to be playing on Linux now. That's where the breakover point's going to be. Is once that happens, Linux will start making a, a, a inroad on gaming. And, you know, is that likely to happen is the question. Well, I think what the, what's going to have to happen is some of the once, you know, and Valve has started it, and I think once the other major, you know, Call of Duty games, once they start coming over, that's when we're going to start seeing more and more of the pro gamers say, you know, maybe I can get 30 extra frames because this thing's run so much leaner. That's when we're, that's when it's going to happen. And until then, it's just going to be, it's going to be a news article here and there saying, Hey, look, this new thing's on Linux. Go, go play it. And then no one's going to play it because no one knows what Linux is and which is why the Steam box will help once that happens. So. Right. I think your point is that right now there's no compelling reason to write to Linux. Um, and, and there has to be, yet. there has to be some reason before it's ever going to happen. And I don't know, you know, hardware may be that reason. Maybe some open hardware will make it happen. But right now there's, there's, you know, it's a very small market and there's just not a lot of reason for it. Right. And the other thing that it, I'll let our audience know, if you're going to buy your games from Steam, and you are a Linux first type person like I am, buy them through the Linux client. Even if it's a Windows game, buy it through the Linux client. That ticks the Valve ticker for Linux, not for Windows. Because it goes off of what, what district or what, where the Steam client is installed, that's what gets the credit. So if you're buying Linux games for your Linux machine, but you're buying it through a web browser on Windows, or you're buying it through the Windows browser or the Windows client, those don't get counted for Linux. Those get counted for Windows. So that might be skewing those that market too a little bit, because I know there's a lot of Linux guys that they just whine Steam to play their games. Right. That's fine but have the Linux client installed too just to buy them and then go to your Wine version and install it. I know it's a it's an extra step, but if you want Linux to make that inroad, you need to make the numbers show, and that's the only way to do it at this point. Seth, did you have a comment? It looked like you were going to say something. Well, no, I just, you know, I mean, I think, unfortunately, we're you know, we're talking about how we're, we're talking about how great Linux is, but yet at the same time, we're whining and saying, if we want Linux to really succeed, we have to do these little tricks. And the, we're still fighting the perception that Linux isn't good enough. So you have to do these other things. And again, it, it's Linux for so long was the underdog on the desktop. And you, you know, you had to accept limitations to do things because, you know, you couldn't print, um, 
there were no games. You know, your websites worked different because everything was IE geared towards and you were running Conqueror or something like that. And it was like, well, you can kind of see the web. And, and now that there's parody, we still have this, but you've got to do special things for Linux. And I don't think we need to do that anymore. We just say, Hey, use Linux for it. It's fine. And we need to, the Linux community needs to get over being the underdog and just state your case and don't whine because you're not the best. Just say, Hey, this is us. Take it or leave it. Um, I'm not going to beg you to try my product. You should, but I, I just think there's a beggar mentality that I hear yeah. a lot in Linux that is, and again, it's not like, Oh, they're not beggars anymore. Everybody's going to switch to them. But I think that's just one of those little, you hear that it's like, you're a beggar. I, you know, you're supposed, you're telling me your thing is so great, but I hear you begging me. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Tell me it's right. great with passion and, you know, make me want it. Don't beg me to give it a try. It just seems to be a mindset that l- the Linux, uh, the Linux faithful have not gotten over yet. I think in general, the open source community is regarded as whiners. Um, and yeah, to, to some degree that, that's deserved. Well deserved. Uh, to a large degree, it's not. But you know, it's it it is it is the perception that we have to work uh, around. We we are seen as as whiners. Uh, and one of the things that I've complained often about is uh, um, if an open source project looks and functions like a proprietary project uh, a product, it will be considered uh, derivative. Well, they're just copying Microsoft Word. If it looks different they'll say it's non-intuitive and nobody knows how to use it so there's you know there's it's it's a no-win situation that has sort of precipitated the whininess because you know sometimes the best we can do is stomp our foot and say pay attention to me um and you know which is certainly suboptimal but it it's sort of a vicious cycle until we start as a community producing something so good that the other people want to use our stuff um then you know we're not really going to be take uh, taking notice of, but because our sole ethos is openness, we always make stuff that work on the other guys too. So it's, right. we shoot ourselves in the foot that way. Well, and that's why I was making sure that everyone realized about the store thing, this the way the Steam store works, because you know if you didn't know that and you were still using the wine workaround and buying your games through that version of Steam, you would some people would think that I'm I'm on Linux. Why isn't it see it that way? But right. it doesn't. So all right, any other comments on Linux gaming? I I'm I'm done. You guys have anything else? <laughs> no, I mean um, Go ahead, Seth. I was just gonna say, you know, and there will come a time has people upgrade, you know, like if you've just invested you know, $10,000 into your gaming PC. And I couldn't imagine $10,000 in one PC, but a serious gamer, you know, they, they drive, a, they drive a Pinto so they can spend, <laughs> you know, I want to drive a nice car. So I buy cheap computers. They're just the opposite. They drive a cheap car so they can have a supercomputer in their basement. You're not going to give that up tomorrow just because, you know, you didn't have the right source. But when it comes time to upgrade, that's when you're going to look. And so even if Linux today came out with something that was five times better, you know, it's going to be a while 
before people's upgrade cycle uh, gets it. And so hopefully that's one of the reasons that it's taking the the Linux Steam boxes so long to get any traction is, you know, just has people go to upgrade, then they'll look for something, you know. Um, and so hopefully, you know, it's just one of those, hey, we picked up a notch here and a notch there. And before you know it, that 1% becomes 2, becomes 2.01, 2.02. And in the year 3000, <laughs> we're up to 5% market share. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of it too. Um, and the other thing that will, that'll help move that along though is a lot of these professional gamers, they don't, if, if they're steam heavy players, um, a lot of times they'll wipe their machines just to reinstall to get a couple extra frames. Uh, you might see people that do that, or the ones that do that may even look, want to know that you can download the Steam Box OS outside of, you know, buying it from a, a vendor. So you could always buy, go that way too. Um, I'm going to try and play with that the next time I wipe my machine. So yeah, it's great. Linux maybe that'll, maybe that'll be my maybe that'll be one of my next thirty days. No, Mark, long 30, live thirty days slash Linux. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's jump up to the uh, the news of the week then, and I love this first one that you've picked, Seth. Uh, not many people outside of Texas will remember H. Ross Perot. He did run for president. Uh, yep. Uh, glaringly ineffectively uh his vice presidential candidate was good uh comedic fodder but uh he gave a simple he's a billionaire and well known as an eccentric billionaire and he gave a simple uh instruction to his people decorate this place with old computer stuff and they delivered in in large fashion yes they found and tracked down inac which if you had computer literacy in the eighth grade um in texas you learned all about enac the electronic enac enac electronic enac i think e-n-i-a-c yeah electronic (laughs) numeral numeral integrator and computer um 27 ton 18,000 square foot bundle of vacuum tubes and diodes that could perform 5,000 instructions per second blew away everything um, that had ever came before it uh, you know in, in a in a model of military uh, efficiency it was created to help uh, calculate artillery tra- trajectories during World War two and it wasn't finished until well after the war was over yes uh, you know D-Day was June, what was it, June 6, 1944. Um, it was, it was commissioned a year before then. So June of 43, they started working on it. They didn't finish it until November of 45. So it took about two and a half years, uh, for them to build it. But, you know, they did a lot of things like, uh, testing for the hydrogen bomb was on it. It, you know, I mean, this was, this kind of blew my mind. An iPhone 6, can do 25 billion instructions per second. And this thing could do 5,000 instructions yeah. per second. So from the forties to the 2000 teens, that's how much greater computing has got. But uh, whenever the army said, okay, that's it. It's done. They kind of broke it apart because you know, the, a computer wasn't something that sat on your desk. It was these humongous panels, this bigger than filing, you know, when people think of filing cabinets today, they, you know, but think of like, 
a, a dresser in your bedroom kind of thing, you know, panels and panels of those that weighed tons and they kind of shipped it apart. And these people wanting to decorate Ross Perot's office, they tracked it down. Um, a, a lot of them had been shipped to Oklahoma. Anyway, it's just a cool story. They found it. And because you don't have all of the panels, it won't function, but they've kind of made it look like it's functioning. You know, they got the lights to blink and stuff, but they saved it from the scrap heap. Uh, so at least you can look back and say, that's a computer. No, this little tiny thing in my pocket's a computer. So I just thought it was a cool story. Yeah. For a long time, the race was in MIPS, millions of operations per seconds. And now we're into the billions uh, and trillions are right around the corner. And in fact, in supercomputers, we, we can do that, but, uh, not in, in consumer devices yet. Yeah. Um, it's an awesome pick. It's, it's awesome though that they found that and was able to put it up there and, and you can go uh, see it. It's open yeah. to the public. That's what's cool. Yeah. So the next time you're in Poino, Texas, go check it out. Well, I think it's actually, uh, been put back in the, um, artillery museum in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Oh, okay. So, uh, um, but the link will be in the show notes. You can go read through and, um, find out. I, I skimmed through the article and don't remember, um, exactly where it is. Uh, and this next story, I, I'm interested, Seth, to see why you think it's interesting because I don't at all. The Brits think Google should be broken up into multiple companies. Well, not really Brits. The, not the, the Europeans. Yeah. The Excuse European me. Union. I painted with a wide brush there. Forgive me. Yes. Now, you know, one thing. They voted in favor of breaking Google up as a solution because, you know, Google is a de facto monopoly. It's not, it, you know, there's lots of other search engines, but they have like 90% market share in Europe. And, um, of course, they don't have the power to enforce a breakup. So it's not like they can say, we voted, you have to break up. Um, I just thought it was interesting that, um, They thought the cure is, you know, Google is apparently so much better that the only hope of other search engines is that Google has to be broken up into different parts, a la, you know, the antitrust case against like Microsoft and IBM and stuff like that. Um, again, I, I don't really, I hope it doesn't happen, but I just thought it was interesting that the uh, European Union voted that Google should be broken up into different parts. So that's, you know, I, that's the reason. I and those it was parts would be what? Search, advertising, uh, handsets, hardware, driving cars. What? They, no, basically, in search article, and advertising. Because, yeah. it, it, you know, the problem is Google, um, you know, Google kind of pulls stuff from other sites into their own products and they make it hard for, or if not impossible for other advertising companies to advertise on their sites. And, you know, how do they prioritize their own advertisers so they get top billing? Um, so that, that was what they were thinking. And this next one, I'm just going to breeze through it. It's, it's really more of a what if piece rather than a news piece. OS news, uh, speculates that Apple might dump Google for their search in the same way that, uh, uh, Mozilla Foundation has, um, which would be fine. It would actually help Google because they could say, see, we're not a monopoly. But the one I do want to talk about is FCC. Uh, again, we talked about that in episode 169, the Federal Communications Commission cracking down on T-Mobile saying, when you throttle people, you have to make it obvious that you throttle people. Yes, they, um, 
T-Mobile, you know, if you hit the data caps on their uh, wireless plans, they, you know, they don't cut you off. They just throttle you down. Right. Because they sell the only quote unquote unlimited service in the country. That's their thing. Where the, we are unlimited where nobody else is, but it's not really limited. You hit, you hit a wall and then they throttle you back to dial up connection speed. Well, a little faster than dial up. Double but, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, although that's near, darn near what I get every day all the time. Um, but, <laughs> but no, but if you go to test your speed at a, um, you know, a bandwidth checking site such as, um, I don't, speedtest.net, yeah, speedtest.net, that's hardwired into their system, not be throttled. So you go there and you think, I'm getting 17 and a half, you know, teraflops a second or just some ridiculous number, but yet, I go to loadgoogle.com without any add-ins and it takes five minutes. What's up? So basically the FCC has said, you do this now. And T-Mobile says, yes, sir. Okay. And I think within 60 days, which I don't understand how it would take up to 60 days for them. Well, they got to build a website and we all know that can take a while. Yeah. To go in (laughs) and delete that code uh, in the throttling section that says, you know, if speedtest.net equal unlimited. Just delete right. that. That's all you have to do. That doesn't. Well, also, take- they're required to put real speed checkers on their own website that'll tell you really what you're getting. In fact, I never trust those. Uh, everybody does that. Comcast, AT and T, they all have their own speed checkers, um, and they're not testing the real throughput. They're testing the 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 transaction speed between your router and their router. But that doesn't actually tell you. Well, that's one of the things I liked about uh, speedtest.net and speedof.me and, and sites like that. They test what you're actually getting, going through multiple hops and and testing real data centers uh, around the world. And, and so T-Mobile is going to say, yeah, between my router and your router, we got freaking two gigabits. I don't know what you're complaining about. Yeah. Well, let's hope that it... uh makes more things happen i don't think i think i think everybody on t-mobile no no i'm, I'm going to totally back off of that statement before i even make it sorry to say i think everybody on t-mobile mobile knows they're being throttled but really i don't think they do i think they just um will blame it on poor cell coverage and they're not going to notice yep. that it happens on the 20th day of the month every month well some might there'll be a couple that'll catch it and then they'll yeah. move off of t-mobile so. All right. And next up, uh, and again, in the much ado about nothing category, um, some security folks uh, in an article over at Ars Technica have said that uh, using a password, password manager on ad- Android could open you up to attacks. Um, Seth, you say what you're going to say, and then I have my thoughts on it. Well, it just has to do with how the password managers in Android work. They utilize the clipboard uh, clipboard. Yeah. Clipboard feature. And, um, so, you know, because your password manager kind of goes through your clipboard, if they're able to access your clipboard, then they're able to see the unencrypted password of the website, thus negating the security, um, of storing it in LastPass. Now, again, that's not like, you know, boom, all of a sudden you have no security, but it's just, you know, is there a better way to do it in Android? I don't know, but just, you know, don't think, oh, I have this program, therefore I'm free to do whatever I want. You know, I can go sideload all these other apps that are questionably doing things because I use a password manager, I'm secure. No. It- so my response to that is uh, uh, very highbrow and intellectual, and it's 
Duh. So <laughs> the, when you go to to uh, LastPass, that's the one I use, so it's the one I know most of. You go to your vault, you copy your password from the vault, this 14-character gibberish thing, and then you paste it into the website. Okay, the clipboard, by definition, is a shared storage space. You could copy that and paste it anywhere. So and uh, uh, Firef- LastPass, in particular, uh, has some things that once you've logged in, for example, it'll clear the password. Or after X number of seconds, it'll clear the, the not the password, but the, the clipboard. clipboard. They're, they're, it takes steps to get around that. But the fact is that there, at this point, as far as I know, there is no way to put something from one app to another without using the clipboard. That's what the clipboard is designed to, getting information from one app to another. Now, on a web browser, um, they have a plugin built right into the browser. They act as though they're keyboard inputs, right? But again, that's your that's in the same app. You have a plugin in the browser. But on, yeah. on Android, you're going from one app to another. The only way to do that is through either the share function or the clipboard. That's it. So this is is, yes, it's a true thing. If you have something... Uh, mal-intentioned uh, on your device that is reading the clipboard, it could do something. But it would also have to be able to read your browser to know what website you're on and know what your uh, login credentials, your your username is on, uh, is, and, and know, you know, it, it's going to have to know lots of other stuff. It can't just read the clipboard and figure out what you're doing. It's got to be more than that. So, yes, it is possible, but it is not easy it's not trivial in any way well again the and the point i was wanting to make through this is don't think just because you've added this step of security in a password manager that you're free to go sideload to your heart's content you know again if you're going outside and again with google play it's not much of a walled garden but if you're going outside that garden you pretty much should consider your phone open uh, because the stuff outside of the semi-vetted apps are really where most of the danger is going to come from anyway. Right. But again, there everything in Android is sandboxed, so that by design, uh, a fart app can't see where your browser is. So they're going to have to be exploiting broken stuff in order to do this. Uh, so the fix here is for Google to do what they're already doing, and that's fix broken stuff and one of the broken stuffs they got to fix and it's one that i called that we talked about a while back is that on lollipop when you encrypt it it makes stuff way slow now i've said that's one of the reasons i don't like to encrypt my phone uh because it there is a a performance overhead but apparently in lollipop it's way worse really yeah um let's see oh i hate these stupid popover ads um uh (laughs) Performance falls by up to 50% in some places and sequential reads by up to 80%. So, I mean, you know, I understand if you want to be more secure, it takes a little bit longer. Like, for example, when you walk out of your house, you normally lock the door. When you go back to your house, there's the extra time of inserting the key to open the door. You know, it's not like you have to stop and make a key, you know, after <laughs> grind it, <laughs> after mining the metal, Mine and smelting the ore. It, you know, it's just like, it's a simple thing. So, you know, the tyranny of the default could really hurt Android in this case, because by default, this gets turned on and all of a sudden, and well, you know, it might just be a marketing ploy. That's like, Oh crap, I've got to upgrade my phone now because 
granted, whenever the next phone is twice as fast, um, and your thing went from half as slow, you go back to normal speed and you thought, wow, I just needed a new phone. So, but yeah, way slow, apparently the encryption. So hopefully they'll do a better job of encrypting. Um, and it's not true that it's turned on by default. Uh, when my phone got, uh, Lollipop, the encryption wasn't turned on. Now, maybe they ship from the factory that way, but I, I kind of don't think they are. Um, interesting to see. Because I, I haven't gotten Lollipop yet on any of my devices. So, yes. And you run encrypted. It's supposed to yeah, be. Yeah, I normally, yeah. It'll be, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on. Uh, maybe it's from factory it's in, it's enabled by default. It could be. That could be. Because I don't, I guess I'll know that too when my wife upgrades later this year. Because she's going to go upgrade to a Lollipop native phone. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But this is a problem that will be fixed. Um, and that's why, Chris, you don't have Lollipop yet. Right? I'm that sure. Google rolls things out in phases for a reason. Uh, and, you know, the there was a, an article, I think it was published on Reddit recently. It was, was something like that where they say they a random 1%, then a random 12%, then a random 25%, and then... Um, you know, they, they scale up from there. So that 1%, they're the canaries in the coal mine. And I probably got in that second wave of the 25% and you're still in the, you know, in the 75% and they'll, it'll, it'll get to you, but the, the odds are it will be fixed by the time it gets to you. Yeah. And I'm not worried about it. I mean, I, I was a little worried about it at first because, you know, I was a Nexus device. I figured I'd be, you know, dog-eared to get in the first couple of runs, but Whatever it'll it'll happen when it happens. And if you decided there that there's not enough Debian in the world, congratulations! There's now Dev One, the first official attempt to fork Debian. Um, I'm not enough of a Linux geek to know what this is all about, but apparently it all comes down to System D, and the Dev One people don't want it, and the Debian people do. Yeah. So, um, and you know, we talked about like this probably some of the reasons people have been leaving Debian. And I just, you know, there's got to be a pool of talent to sustain your project. My concern is does this break? Does this make the pool of talent left at Debian enough to maintain the excellence of Debian? You know, or is this have they doomed it by? taking you know are is dev one not going to be enough talent to maintain a good pace and is there not enough talent left at debian you know it could just be a changing of the guard there's one more linux distro everything's good from here on out it's choice it's the it's the awesome thing of open source if you don't like something change it and do your own or did they break one of the um well uh, i guess linux royalty i mean i guess is that a good way to describe debian it's not the oldest but it's been around for a while and it is the source from which so much flows even through uh, Ubuntu, you know, which is upstream right. of Debian. Now Ubuntu is big enough that they can probably, you know, and that was one of the um, things you heard from Debian is that, you know, Ubuntu uses our stuff, but they don't ever give back anything to us. And then there was a move that like Ubuntu at least said they were, I never saw where they did give much code back to Debian, but um, Ubuntu is big enough that they can probably survive it if Debian goes away. But what about, you know, the other 7 million Linux distros that depend on Debian? What's, what's going to become of them? It's for the children, Mark. I, I, 
just just for my question, and I, again, I'm not enough of a neckbeard to know the super in and outs of between system D and system, and then sys I and IT to know exactly why there's such a big hate for system D. I know when Fedora originally put system D into place, that transition, uh, just that tra- transition version was horrible, but the next one was spot on. So I don't understand why there's so much hate for system D. It seems to be trying to simplify a lot of things down to a common thread instead of breaking it up. Neckbeards, let us know. If you wear a bandana and a fanny pack, you probably know the answer to this question, (laughs) and we would appreciate hearing from you. But, Seth, right now, I would appreciate hearing what happened this week in history. Well, Mark, I thought I would keep... uh you know, stay with our gaming theme. And I want to say that on November the 29th, 1972, Atari announces the release of Pong, the first commercially successful video game. Nice. I played Pong. I loved it. I still, yeah, you know, and there's a, I believe it was Pong. You know, they, um, they had them in these little cabinets and they put one at this bar to test it. And the bar owner called and said, Hey, your machine's broken. You have to come down here and fix it. And what had happened was people had played it so much. It was stuffed full of coins. And so the, I, they had to empty the coin bank out in order for it to work again. So it was a big hit when it was first released. Um, and you know, Atari was in America anyway, the awesome console, you know, the 2600. Most kids my age have one. And then they came mm-hmm. out with the 5200 that you could pause the game in the middle of it. Unbelievable. Uh, that was just you, you, amazing. You're, kidding. you're making this up. It was game groundbreaking. Game. You know, and now, golly, how can you not pause a game when you're playing it? But right. yeah, so, you know. And the concept of checkpoints came along somewhere i remember those early games were one long 11 hour thing and if you died at hour nine tough noogies you started over again yep yep yeah i remember a lot of those and i mean mario brothers was one of those there were no checkpoints in mario brothers um it, it wasn't until probably the the 90s that that came around so for 20 years people were were living through the hell that is no checkpoints yep yeah <laughs> The, ah. the times that that these new kids they just don't understand. And pong, I mean, pong is the simplest of simple games. It's 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 table tennis, where you have two axes of controls, turn it left, turn it right, and it was quasi physics based in that you could kind of to uh, accept uh, affect the the acceleration, but you couldn't put a spin on it or anything like that. It was a it was a square ball. Um, it, it's, it's mind blowing to me to think something that simple that wouldn't Im- impress my, you know, two year old when she was two at all was the start of a whole new thing. It captivated the generation. Oh man. Oh, yeah. And you remember you, you had to play it with like the paddle wheel, not even yeah. the joystick, but just this knob that you turn back and forth. It's like, man, yep. that was, I, I think what made it good was it was a good drunk game. Drunks could play it. Um, yep. And so maybe that's what made it so popular on college campuses. I would guess so. You know what? How how simple is it? You just turn the knob one way or the other, and the bar moves accordingly. Yeah. It's like ice hockey with or, or air hockey without all the work. Yeah, it was great, right? <laughs> well, you know, you think about it, you didn't know what else to do. 
back then. You know, it wasn't until somebody saw that and thought, I wonder what happened if this, but you know, you, I can't remember the name of it, but there's this one, like it's a space fighter game that was super simple by today's standards that, you know, was, could get loaded on main. No, you loaded it on mainframes and stuff. And, um, I, somebody had recompiled it and I played it. And I was like, man, this is, this is lame. But, you know, <laughs> back in the like late sixties, when it came out, it wasn't lame. It was the greatest thing ever. So, you know, yeah. you go from there and then you add asteroids. I mean, think about how simple Pac-Man is today. Yeah. Space invaders. Yeah. Space bump, invaders. Bump, 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 bump. That was the soundtrack. Yep. And you could go back and forth. Pew, 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 pew. That was, that was it. <laughs> yeah. And then I remember Gorf. It had all the different games in it. That, yes. that was an awesome game. Uh, I loved me some Phoenix back in the day. Galaxia was another uh, sort of Galaxia mishmash of games. Awesome. Yep. yep. Yeah. And then Centipede came out with a ball, a track ball, a yep. revolutionary, <clears throat> unheard of. Oh, you remember the football game with the ball and you would stand yeah. on the side and just spin that thing as hard as you could. And then the guy be on the other side when your arms got tired so he could spin it. And then you would yeah. switch places so you could go the other way. Oh man, that football yeah. game was awesome. <laughs> so Seth, speaking of awesome games, if I don't want to buy from the man, where can I get my games? Well, I, uh, I've had this link for a long, long time and I've been saving it. So I thought I would use it today. If you go to indiebox.com, I-N-D-I-E-B-O-X.com, um, it's like one game a month. They send it to you. Um, there's even a code there on the website, so you can get like 10% off. It's like $17 uh, for one month. You can do a three-month or a six-month plan. Um, you know, you join. You get a little box that has your game in it, and they seem to be pretty cool games. Again, I'm not a gamer, so it's not a big deal for me. But, you know, if you're into games and you want to try something a little different, give IndieBox a try. Yeah, from what I'm reading on the website, it looks like they have uh, not just the game, but some game swag in the boxes. So that's kind of cool. And apparently you can buy past boxes as well. So um, yeah, I guess they play Up a little. so far. Yeah, they, they cost a little bit more money. Um, but you know, you're like, Hey, I heard the one last year was awesome. I want to check it out. So there you go. Cool. What do you get? What do you get in brutal, Le- the brutal legend box? I, that, that's, I'm curious. Is it that all, is a fun it, game. I can't tell from this. Some of the pictures make me think it's not all video games, but there may be board games as well. No, that's like comes. It's like, that's like some stuff they put in the gotcha. box, but that's apparently it's all, yeah, it's all video games. Okay. Cool. Thanks, yeah. Seth. That's that, that's like uh what, what's that other one that d- does something like this? Uh loot box or loot crate. That's another one that's like this that it's not just video games but it's like any geeky type of thing is lo- it's like loot crate. You're not going to hamper my productivity with this link Seth, but there the you may have well put a dent in this audience's productivity thus making you a more attractive a higher woo, opportunity. Woo. Yeah. I'm trending upwards on LinkedIn. 
<laughs> so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can contact us. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? What would you like to see us do in the future? You can, you can answer all of these questions over at every uh, elementop.com. Uh, uh, click on the Contact Us button at the top of the page or uh, use uh, send us an email to edl at elementop.com. Uh, or if you'd like your own voice to appear right here beside mine, call 559-IAM-OP anywhere in North America. And it's a free call. And uh, you can uh, leave us a voicemail and we'll play it on the air. If you're outside uh, the country and you still want to do that, just send me a, uh, a file or you know Dropbox it or whatever. And, and uh, we can do it that way. Send me the link. Uh, we love to hear from you. You are literally the reason we do this show. Um, while we're talking about uh, Cyber Monday, Black Friday, all that sort of shopping, if you're going to do shopping on Amazon, please use elementopi.com slash Amazon. No additional cost to you. No change in your experience at all. It makes me a few bucks, and I would appreciate it. Also, if you want to show us some direct love over at Patreon, uh, Amazon, uh, elementopi.com slash Patreon, you can become a direct supporter of the show for you know whatever t- amount you pick, from a dollar to a hundred dollars to a billion dollars, whatever you want to do. Uh, I'm sure uh, the Patreon guys would process a billion dollars per show if that's what you wanted to do. Um, we again, awesome. we love doing the show, and you uh, make it possible uh, by your continued support uh, financially and otherwise. Uh, also, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and uh, wherever else you listen to the show. Uh, we appreciate it. And Seth, Chris, thanks for being with us. Thanks for being the awesome host that you are. Uh, Spin right, got you here, and uh, we thank Steve Gibson for this show. <laughs> And I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux.